0: Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all, on the platform that trades it all, FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX. Shohei's in. Are you? Hello everyone and welcome to the Fits on Fantasy podcast. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. Please come have a look at my preseason fantasy draft rankings at thefootballgirl.com. and while you're there be sure to check out my buying guide series a team-by-team look at player value that I think you might enjoy. Above all I try to make sure the writing isn't too dry so even if you don't agree on my player evaluations hopefully you will at least be entertained and If you haven't done so already, I'll ask you to take a minute to rate and review this podcast. Doing so really helps the show, and I'll be forever in your debt if you do me that favor. So, this is the 54th episode of the Fits on Fantasy podcast. And for the first 53 episodes, I have had 53 different guests. And I do like having a wide variety of voices from across the fantasy media on this podcast. And I will continue to bring on new guests, but there are also some good people I want to invite back. A lot of people, in fact. And on today's show, I'm going to have my very first repeat guest. I am pleased to welcome back Scott Pianowski of Yahoo. His last appearance was just over a year ago, I believe, and it's high time he made his return. You can meet some really great people through fantasy and through social media and i've gotten to be friends with scott in recent years for which i'm extremely grateful he's a really good dude and also really sharp dude when it comes to fantasy so this is going to be a fun conversation i have a feeling it's going to be a long conversation and scott has a fairly new fantasy baseball podcast that i've been enjoying i play a little fantasy baseball too And one of the cool ideas Scott had for his podcast was to have a mini draft with his guest at the end of each episode. I am going to brazenly steal that idea from Scott. And at the end of this show, we are going to draft our favorite female vocalists. Uh, Scott and I talk music on Twitter almost as often as we talk sports. And well, this podcast is done in conjunction with the football girl. So I thought it might be fun to draft female singers and maybe appropriate too but of course we have a lot of fantasy football to talk about as well so let's get to it let's bring in scott pianowski of yahoo Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, I felt that after a year of doing this podcast with a different guest each episode, it was time to start bringing back some old friends, and I wanted to start with one of my very favorite people in the fantasy media, Scott Pianowski of Yahoo. Scott has you covered on both football and baseball over at Yahoo. He's also well-versed in hockey, basketball, golf, et cetera, and I should mention two of the excellent podcasts Scott is involved with. One is the Breakfast Table podcast podcast a Patreon venture that he co-hosts with Michael Salfino and a show that I never miss and also his relatively new Yahoo Baseball podcast, which is also excellent. I'm going to ask him about that podcast and I'm also going to shamelessly steal from it at the end of the show. His Twitter handle is at Scott underscore Pianowski. Scott, great to have you back, buddy. What a lovely intro that was. Uh, it's great to be back. You're
1: doing excellent work on this pod, having really high-level conversations, and I just hope I can keep that run going for you. And, uh, you know, it's a really fun time of year at football. I feel like after the All-Star break in baseball, I maybe I shouldn't conflate the sports, but I feel like that, to me, is when draft season really kicks in. I, I know we draft earlier now with best ball leagues and stuff like that, and that's great. What a wonderful way to get a sense of the player pool, and you and I are actually in a best ball draft right now. That's with a bunch of uh, breakfast table readers. So it'll be fun to see that unfold. But I feel like right now is really when I'm starting to get my early fingerprints on opinions are starting to become a little bit more dug in. I mean, obviously I'm going to react to what happens in the summer or not react as the case may be, but uh, it's just the time where I start getting excited about football drafts. We just had the fishbowl draft. I'm starting to have stakes in players now, and I'm starting to see, you know, we don't know the picture is not developed, but we can at least see it's not just completely fuzzy. Now we have a little bit, of development obviously the NFL draft is a couple months in the books now so now I'm starting to get a sense of this is a player I like at his cost this is a player I don't like this is an offense I could see myself getting invested in this is a, a name brand team I want to move away from so uh, it's exciting to be at that point but hey uh, too much talking for me I'm just thrilled to be on your show and it's always fun I always try on my baseball podcast to always book my friends because then you just have a really casual conversational tone to the pod and uh, you know what's better than be talking to you
0: yeah, man, I feel the same way. And uh, maybe we should start with the big news of the week, which was, I guess, the NFL's decision not to suspend Tyreek Hill for the unsavory episode involving Hill, his fiance, and his three year old son, who wound up with a broken arm. Um, there was also a recording that was made surreptitiously by the fiance, just a really gross situation. But I guess our concern here is the fantasy angle on it, as much as I. Don't like to sweep aside the human elements. Um, but now that it appears Hill won't be suspended, at least not unless new information comes to light or the investigation, uh, the legal investigation takes a different turn. Where are you putting him in your wide receiver rankings? First of all, let me take a loss on something. One, th- And I
1: haven't drafted a ton, but I do have some best ball resume built up a handful of drafts. There was a great buying opportunity on Tyreek Hill that I completely misjudged. And maybe... It's just there's an empath in me where I hear the story. I, I obviously don't know the full details. I, I've never met Tyreek Hill or, or his fiance, and I don't want to claim that I know all the facts. But I, I just thought the optics of it and the way the NFL handles these types of things. And I, look, I am I have a very low batting average with guessing what the NFL will do. I still don't understand why Tom Brady got four games for what I still think was going 65 and a 55. Maybe that's a one-game suspension. Maybe that's nothing. And uh, I just thought the optics of this would lead to a suspension for Hill. So I had him in my mind. It wasn't even so much of a hard rank, but in my mind, it was just like, okay, I'm not going to touch this. I'm afraid he's going to miss a chunk of games. And then you have to worry about the amp up when he returns, how healthy is he? Uh, how ready is he to go? Is there any kind of a snap count? And, you know, Maybe you have those couple of extra games caught in the carpet because of that. You know, maybe Reed doesn't welcome him back right away. Although, of course, you know, Hill's such an extreme talent. So I I take the L for the fact that there was a great buying opportunity that I misjudged because, once again, I have failed at trying to understand what the NFL's logic is with suspensions, and I I just don't have a good record with that. So I'll say that up front. I considered him more of a second-round pick than a first-round pick, but I see him going in the first round of drafts or early in the second round. So I guess this isn't maybe a, a hard answer, but I get the sense that the market is more interested in Hill than I am, and sometimes it's all you need to know with a player who you know is not is going to be expensive. Just say, for example, you felt like you liked David Johnson a little bit less than most people, and then you see him going in the top seven or eight of just about every draft, you probably know you're not going to have David Johnson on your team because the rest of the market has spoken emphatically on that. I get the sense that Hill is going to fall into a top 15 player when we really get into the teeth of draft season. And just the type of player he is, he needs to make so many splash plays. I mean, I know he's really difficult to cover and everything, but he's not the type of guy I see scoring a lot of easy touchdowns from short distances. And that's something I want from a receiver. I take where Hill's going to go. So as splashy as he is, as fast as he is, obviously he's tied to Nandy Andy Reed offense. Patrick Mahomes is wonderful. We all know that. I mean, he's in a, just about as good of a setup as you could have. I think I'm going to be out on Tyree kill. And it's not for the personal reasons, even though I'm like a, any human being, you know, those are troubling and I, it's hard to separate those things with me sometimes, but I mean, I, I, go to the table and try to assemble my, my best team. I think I'm just a little bit less optimistic of Hill, mostly because he has to score in those, those splashy touchdown fashion. I'm just not sure how much I want to bank on that.
0: I think I kind of feel the same way. Um, after the news came out, I think I put him at wide receiver seven. And considering he is going like in the back of the first round, that might just be a little too – A little too late since I've got those six wide receivers and maybe about six or seven running backs, and I guess Travis Kelsey, who I'd take ahead of him. So, um, yeah, it, it just, it's kind of a weird situation, and, you know, we can't totally dismiss the possibility that there's a later suspension if something else comes up. So, I mean, there's just a little bit of uncertainty there. I'm not real ready to embrace, but I know what you mean about taking the L, For the most part, uh, I feel the same way. I don't think I have him in any basketball drafts, maybe one out of like the the dozen or so I've done so far. I think I got him in a mock draft that I was in with you like maybe a week and a half ago where he was just sitting there in like the fifth or sixth round and I already had Pat Mahomes. So, um, yeah, unfortunately it was just a mock, so I'm not going to cash in on that. But what about Sammy Watkins now? Let me, say, let me say one of the, let me,
1: before we go into walk ins, let me just piggyback one more thing. And I don't do a lot of these contests that are structured this way. So maybe it's why I didn't think about it so much. But if you're doing drafts, um, best ball drafts, or any kind of contest where the draft window, the, the availability to draft a team opens early, you want to be hair on fire volatility with those drafts more than you normally would. Granted, I'm a big believer in you can build a great team by hitting a lot of singles and doubles and just incrementally making plus EV picks and then adds up to, you know, you have a reasonable amount of health and you have a really good team. But the thing is, and, and I and I get that one of the pitfalls of drafting early, a lot of people don't want to do it because oh, my player's going to get hurt in training camp and I have a big fat zero. And I and I get that. But what the advantage you have when you draft early, and why I like to do it, even though I failed on the Hill case here, is I think if you're a good fantasy player, your ability is going to be connecting dots before the the public, the weakest players in fantasy, the real common hobbyists who, who maybe haven't even picked up their research yet, they're going to need to be told the answers, right? They want the draft right before the season. They want to know everybody's hurt. They want to know all the roles as defined as they can be. And they'll work in the ADPs of crystallized and all that. And so they can work off that. They do not want to draft early when you have to connect dots and guess who's really the number two receiver here. Who's really the number three receiver here. Who's the goal line back, You know, who's even the starter at certain positions. They don't want any of that. So your ability... There's more variability in the early drafts. There's less crystallization to the ADPs, and you're willing to hit. You're, I mean, yeah, there's always going to be examples like uh, I think Greg Ambrosius was bringing up. well, if people took James Conner last year right before draft day. You get a huge discount because you know people were still taking him in the 11th round. Of course, James Conner earlier than that, you know, May or June, he, he may have been like a 15th round pick. Your your chances because the volatility is higher. Beforehand, you have to connect more dots. You have a bigger chance, like say if you're in a a contest, a best ball contest where you're competing against everybody, there's going to be more of a chance of you building this juggernaut monster of a team just because there's going to be discounts based on the uncertainty of information that you can get in the spring or early summer that you won't be able to get in
0: August or right before the season starts. Really good point. I mean, I think the early best ball drafters, the ones doing best balls in in March and April are the ones who are able to do a little bit of fortune telling. And there are a lot of people who are only able to see the real time snapshots of how things are at a given moment and not really be able to see the way things might evolve or the different possibilities for the way things might evolve. So, um, yeah, really good point on that. Um, so, which, which kind of circles back around to Watkins, who people were talking about a month ago as a, a potential value pick, a, a guy maybe a top 25 receiver. Uh, now with Hill back, what do you think?
1: Man, Watkins, isn't it funny how somebody can be so early? There's a quote from the, from the book um, The Lover by Marguerite Duras, which is, Very early in my life, it was too late. And I feel that's a little bit applicable to Watkins, that how did we get so late in his career? So early in his career, he's a young guy, bounced around to different teams, worry about his health. I he was such an ordinary player with the Chiefs last year. I I just feel like if it was going to happen for Sammy Watkins, it should have happened by now. And in this offense, Kelsey's always going to be in front of him in line, and Hill's going to be more of a priority. And we know Andy Reid usually has a featured back who's a fantasy. Stall, stalwart. I really don't know what to do with Damian Williams. I think he's one of the most interesting, fascinating guys, and, and I wish I had a, you know, again, I can connect dots, right? But I have nothing great on Damian Williams other than a guess, which I think a lot of people have. But I just think, even though it's, it's a high volume offense, I see people in front of Watkins' line to begin with, and then they added depth at the receiver position that I think might have an impact this year. I, you know, he's one of those guys, and I know this is kind of a cop out. I mean, there's a price where I take him, and you know, a lot of people are just not going to consider him seriously. So maybe. I'd be more inclined to take him in a best ball draft where you would just get the center cut of him and not have to predict when it's going to happen. I'm not confident he's going to be going to have projectable statistics that we can play in seasonal. I'd have a real big problem playing Sammy Watkins in a seasonal league viewing him. I mean, great. You got draft him as a bench player anyway, but I don't know what would have to happen in Kansas city before I'd be like, Oh, Yo, you know what? I'm in on Sammy Watkins every week. I mean, maybe he would have to get suspended again or, or um, you know, Kelsey gets hurt or something changes to the dynamic of the offense right now. I find it hard to tell myself a story that ends up positive for Sammy Watkins other than a few random.
0: And unless you're playing in a league with a a pretty deep starting lineup, a Scott Fishbowl, where you've got to start 11 guys, if you're playing in a more conventional league where you're starting like eight guys, uh, including, you know, a defense, hard to see him as an every week starter maybe. And uh, possible that the caliber of the offense floats his value a little bit. But yeah, as you mentioned, as the third or fourth pass-catching target in this offense. Um, hard to keep him in the top 25, top 30, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and let's let's just make a point here that a lot of times you're going to be in a draft and
1: you're going to have a choice between two different archetype players. Sammy Watkins, a really great secondary player on a loaded offense. I'm sorry, a uh, secondary player on a loaded offense. You know, as good of a play designer, as good of a quarterback as you could be tied to. Or you'll have somebody – this isn't maybe a direct ADP comp, but you'll have maybe like a D.D. Westbrook type who may be be the best receiver in Jacksonville, and we don't even know that for sure. But he's tied to a team that wants to run the ball, wants to play defense. Nick Foles, they're hoping, will be an adequate quarterback. But, I mean, nobody at this point in time, I don't think, is looking at Nick Foles as a plus quarterback. I mean, they're just hoping he can hold the fort down and not be like Blake Bortles was. So do you want somebody who's the big fish in the small pond, where maybe the upside is capped because of the way the team plays or the upside of the quarterback and the coach and all that stuff? Or do you want the player who's tied to Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes, which is great, but there's so many people in front of him in line? I'm not saying there's ever going to be a direct answer to this, but it's just interesting the choices you make. You know, Do you talk yourself into a, a Zay Jones or a Foster or you know John Brown or somebody in Buffalo thinking, hey, maybe they'll be the best receiver in Buffalo, to which somebody else might say, Well, why would I want the best receiver in Buffalo? I don't want any of those guys. I don't think Josh Allen knows how to throw from the pocket. And I think most of their big plays last year were accidents that I don't expect to repeat. It's just one of the things you have to ask yourself in fantasy. You know, are you better off? And again, it's not like you have to have the same answer constantly. But, you know, um, a lot of times I will go with a player just like, you know, okay, I want a piece of Andy Reid. I want a piece of the Chiefs. I'll just trust that he sorts it out. I think I've just been soured on the last couple of years of Watkins and I've seen his body break down already. I'm starting to view him as like he's like a
0: 31 or 32-year-old receiver in a mid-20s body. Yeah, he has aged pretty quickly. But um, as, as you said, I mean, there is something to be said for having a guy in a good ecosystem like that, a healthy environment, good quarterback, good coaching. And, you know, maybe if the ADP settles a little bit, um, you know, even though I'm I'm not going to have him in the top 30 my there still might be the possibility that he goes for a price I'm willing to pay in some of these drafts. Um, Speaking of good ecosystems, Brandon Cooks and Robert Woods, uh, it seems like most rankers have these two guys either adjacent to each other or very close to each other in the rankings. And it seems like the two of them often go within just a few picks of each other in best ball drafts. Now I heard you and Salfino talking about this on the Breakfast Table pod, and I was kind of surprised to hear that you both think woods is the better choice than cooks now i i like both guys but if you had to cape up for just one of them uh so you're on team woods i am on team woods with the
1: understanding and again i said all early in the podcast i can connect dots early i don't know what the heck to do with cooper cup and it's such a shame because he really had a great splashy rookie year uh interrupted by injury and then last year he was having a breakout season it was a difference maker, and remember how awesome that offense was when everything was clicking, where Cup was on the field and Gurley was at top speed, and what a, what a conundrum Gurley is right now. But I think with Woods and Cooks, it probably speaks to my personality where I like the players who are more consistent, who run more of the route tree. I think Cooks is more. Cooks is a guy who helps you be by being on the field. It's funny how he's been used at different points of his career in different ways. I mean, they, a lot of the Saints had him running a lot of short routes, and he had a very short yards per catch and then that's expanded as he's gone to different teams and why is a player this talented being traded or bounced around the league so much albeit he's been on three really good offenses but I like that Woods is a more I think complete receiver going to be a more consistent player and I'm willing to write off what he did in Buffalo to just the stench of that offense it was really hard for anybody to do anything of note and you know so many great USC receivers are coming to the league I mean he was a legitimate star at USC I just feel he's more complete more consistent player and Cook's you know, two of his touchdowns were in week 17. I think he's going to be one of those guys that he, he's going to have like five, six, seven week stretches where he might not score a touchdown at all. And then maybe you get soured on him or you don't want to play him in DFS or whatever. And he has like a two or three touchdown game. I, I like, I gravitate towards, I know consistency is a little bit of a maybe a, a Lemmings thing to go after with receivers because it's a volatility position. They're all, AJ Green is going to have two catches for 19 yards. Sometimes it just happens, you know, I mean, uh, it's part of the game, but, I feel like Woods is just more complete, more consistent, and I see his floor being high.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I I think they're both consistent, but in different ways. I I think with Cooks, you get seasonal consistency. He has finished top 14 in half-point PPR in four consecutive seasons, and he's done it with three different teams. But then week to week, it is a little more volatile with him. Uh, Last year, Woods had... 10 straight games with 70 or more receiving yards, which is pretty amazing. I mean, he is checking in for you game after game after game. And I think he only had fewer than 60 receiving yards just twice last year. So, um, yeah, I'm a a big fan of that weekly consistency, too. I think I am one of the people who have the two of them adjacent in my rankings and, uh, you know, like them both at cost. So, no and it's going to be like
1: a dog whistle now, right? When one of them gets drafted, it's almost like signaling to the rest of the room that the other guy should go really soon thereafter. And, and even Cup won't be far after that. And I guess a lot of it will depend on what kind of news seeps out with the Rams on Cup. Let me ask you, because I've seen it
0: all over my Twitter feed for a few weeks. How are you playing Gurley? I've moved him down somewhat. I, I still think he's a second-round value. But for me, maybe a later second-round value where some people – it seems like he does not get past pick, oh, I don't know, pick 15 or 16 very often in drafts. Um, so I don't know. I think positionally I've got him like running back 11 right now. How about you? It's another case of I just think somebody's going to talk themselves into a
1: girly narrative that I won't. He's first two rounds I'm out on Gurley. There, there's a really interesting debate today from two people I greatly respect. Uh, Jason Wood of football guys, and J.J. Zacharyson, a uh, late-round quarterback, and uh, various fantasy sites. Uh, two really smart guys. When they talk, I, I'm interested. And they were on different sides of Gurley. Uh, Jason Wood thinks it's silly that people are discounting Gurley, and he's a great value in the second round. And, and J.J. had a lot of reasons why he was worried about Gurley and thought he was an easy fade in the first couple of rounds. And for me, I just worry that, I saw last year what they did where they backed off Gurley and they, the team wasn't very forthcoming about what was going on with Gurley. And he's another guy I talked about Sammy Watkins, you know, being really old early in his career. I mean, Gurley, I can't believe he's still, I think just 24, maybe turns 25 right before the start of the season, but you know, he, he had the the blowout in college. He had the one fantasy season in the NFL that was a washout. and Obviously he was held down by the Jeff Fisher regime and, and things have been great since they got uh, the new coaching staff in there with McVay and all that. But I just feel like his body has been through a lot of attrition and I don't think the team wants to play the way he was relied on. Uh, They prioritize drafting other running backs. I mean, C.J. Anderson, of course, when the the money was on the line, C.J. Anderson was on the field and that spoke to, I think, probably Gurley's health, but I don't think Gurley's going to play in the preseason. I don't think the Rams are going to give us any information. Why should they? Uh, Most teams aren't forthcoming. They're not in the business of informing us. So I think you're really flying blind on Gurley and, I don't want to Jason Woods points. We'll say, hey, they, every running back is injury. You're kidding yourself if you think that's not true. And I and I see that, but I think it's like a Orwellian thing where you know all the animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. I think every running back has injury risk, but some have more risk than others. And I think my uneducated, non doctor opinion is that Gurley brings on more downside risk or less floor than what I'd like from a, a premium pick. And I, and I look, people are thinking if I get him in the second round. Maybe he could be a top five running back. He was best running back, I think, the last two years. So they think they're trying to hit a home run. I think I'm just more floor driven. And I know it's, you know, how do I know that Joe Mixon is really more, you know, less injury prone than Gurley? I mean, it's kind of a hard nebulous thing to know, but I feel like there's more smoke around Gurley right now. and It makes me nervous in the top two
0: Now, I know you tend to steer away from the guys with like injury or suspension ambiguity, the guys who are maybe going at discounts because of this, and I kind of use a sliding scale. Tell me what you think of this. I I know in my home leagues I won't be going after Gurley because, um, for one, he's probably going to get drafted at or above his ADP, and uh, number two, there's just consistently – value in those drafts because there are a few fish and there are some dubious picks being made throughout the draft and it, it just ha- creates a lot of value. And I feel like if you just keep slowly but surely capitalizing on the value and making, you know, the right percentage play picks each round, uh, it's a pretty good way to, to team build in those home leagues. But in some of these leagues I do with guys like, uh, gosh, tomorrow I'm, I'm drafting in a 14-team charity league with like Sean Corner and Jake Seeley and, you know, a bunch of really sharp people. I'm more inclined to take those chances uh in a draft like that where, you know, I, I know I'm not the smartest guy in that room. So I'm I'm willing to maybe take those discounts a little bit more and hope that, you know, I, I connect and go deep with a few of those picks.
1: Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's kind of the David and Goliath strategy in the NFL where for years, uh, I'll just use the Patriots as an example. One of the advantages the Patriots have had over a lot of other teams that aren't optimally run is that people will play against new England and think, okay, we can't do anything wrong in this game. We gotta be really careful. We don't want to go for it fourth down and one at midfield. Cause we might, you know, we might not make it. We might give them the ball at midfield. When, if you feel, no, first of all, I'm, I'm not going to concede that anybody has an advantage over you. you. You know what you're doing and you're a really savvy player. With all due respect to Sean and Jake, and I'm sure the other people in that league, I mean, they have to worry about you too. But if we were to accept the premise that that's a harder league for you to win, and again, I'm not accepting it, but I'll, I'll just play along here for a minute, then you have to be like the underdog team that goes into Foxborough and says, you know what? I'm going for it on fourth and short. Maybe you should be going for it anyway, but you have to embrace volatility and take proactive risks, you know, be aggressive, selectively aggressive and not be afraid to lose. You know, so many, you see it. And I'm always talking about friendliest loss where people, oh, we don't want to get embarrassed. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to go for it and not make it. We don't want to lose by another touchdown. You should be trying to win the game. And it's not about, this isn't a peewee football game. You're not coaching a, a bunch of nine-year-olds who you're, you're worried about breaking their emotional spirit. These are professional athletes and you owe it to them to give them the best chance to win. So if you think that the other team has more talent, you have to embrace the certain strategies that tie into that where you want volatility. You know, you want to take chances. And if you lose, well, so what? You're probably going to lose anyway. So in other words, I'm I am agreeing with your strategy that if you feel that your your plus EV, your EV in a league is lower than usual, yeah, you know, play with your hair on fire. It doesn't doesn't mean draft Patrick Mahomes first overall, but you know, take some chances, give yourself a chance uh for things to go right. And, you know, again, you don't don't punt on fourth and one. Go for it on fourth and one.
0: Yeah. And this is kind of a tangent, but I mean, like there are a lot of people, the people who, um, you know, our followers, who are the people who largely are the ones listening to fantasy podcasts year round and reading articles and and keeping on top of ADP in late March. And, um, but there are some people who sort of come out of fantasy football hibernation, like late July or early August every year, you know, people who are busy with Demanding jobs, or, or kids, or caring for sick relatives—you know there are a lot of people who just uh, that's their thing. They enjoy fantasy football, but at a less uh, less of a depth than some other people do. And I think it's those people who could maybe, you know, benefit from some of these flyer picks—not flyer picks, but uh, you know, riskier picks. Like strength loves certainty, and weakness loves risk, and. I think maybe the less prepared you are, the better off you are taking a few chances. And this is an in-season strategy as well,
1: where when you say um, whatever fantasy sport you play, if I'm in a fantasy baseball league right now and I'm in ninth place, I might take a chance on, say, Giancarlo Stanton coming back in August and hoping, as much as I don't like injury optimism, I might say, well, maybe he'd come back and and he'll be a first-round talent for two months and, and I'll make a really big profit on what the buy-in is. Now, if I have a team that's loaded and in first place, and I can trade a Giancarlo Stanton for somebody who's a sure thing, who's healthy, who's maybe 80 or 90% of the full Giancarlo Stanton. I'm just throwing those numbers out arbitrarily. But you know, it may be a case where if you're playing from the lead, you want the sa- a lot of times you want the safe option. It makes more sense. Where if you're you know you're in ninth place, you're gonna lose anyway, just throw a long pass on third down and 17. What does it matter if it's intercepted? you know, give yourself an opportunity. So these aren't just strategies that you look at before the season, but it's like every fantasy season or any game you play is like that deck of cards. And, you know, you talk about, they talk about money ball. They wanted the count in baseball to be like the deck of cards in blackjack where the count is constantly changing and you have a new set of parameters and circumstances for every decision you make. That's kind of how fantasy is. Some things are going to be just stable and it's not really going to be that contextual, but for the most part, everything is contextual. And, it's funny how often I give advice and somebody will say, well, yeah, well, but in my league it's this way or in my league it's that way. Well, yeah, of course, it's all contextual. I, I get that. That's kind of the presumed tagline to everything we do. But just remember, you know, I mean, you talked about being a, a quote-unquote underdog of sorts in that league you were talking about. I mean, who's to say that three or four weeks in, you may not have the 4-0 and team that everything has fallen right, and now you can approach your team. You may be, have the benefit of looking ahead or benefit – of waiting on an injured player or the benefit of not worrying about, oh my God, I got to win in week five because I'm one and three or I'm oh and four. You can take on a different tack with your strategy because you're playing with leverage. And by the way, it's always one of my goals. I know it's kind of hard necessarily to pinpoint what you do to get to this point, but I want to get off to a fresh, a, a fast start, a fresh start. It's one reason why I don't need like to be tied to injured players early because I hate being inflexible with free agency we know that there's going to be a lot of players we don't see coming. I always feel after every draft, oh my God, there's nothing left in the waiver wire. We just did the Scott Fishbowl. What is it, 22 rounds or 20 rounds, whatever it is? And we don't take kickers or defenses. So we absolutely drain the player pool. And I was having trouble finding guys I liked the last couple of rounds. And yet there'll be somebody on September 15th. I'm like, oh my God, nobody drafted him. I got to get that guy. I mean, the waiver wire is like grass in your backyard. You cut it, and a week later, it's going to be cut again. So. I want to have flexibility early. I'd like to get
0: off to a good start, and uh, those are just some of my goals. I think of as a fantasy season starts. With this conversation we've been having about risk, how do you feel? And um, and by the way, you did grow up as a Patriots fan, which I know, and and presumably still pull for them, but you don't exactly wear your loyalties on your sleeve. Um, are, is Sony Michelle a red flag guy for you because of his knee? Yeah, I'm probably not going to have him. Yeah, I think one of the biggest compliments anybody ever
1: gave me, not that I sit in anything, but one time Mark Stopa, my friend, who, uh, incidentally, you sound exactly like. Every time I talk to you, I think I'm talking to Mark, too. But you guys, I don't, I don't know if you guys grew up somewhere in the same area. I don't think that's true. You grew up in Wisconsin, right? Yes,
0: and he's a Florida guy? Yeah,
1: yeah, but I think he grew up in, he's, he's tied to, to the Buffalo somehow. I thought he might have grown up in Buffalo. I should know that. He's a, man, you guys sound a lot alike. He said to me once, we'd known each other a few years Um through I was working doing some part-time work for Roto and you know at Yahoo at that point. Mark was doing some Roto Wire work. And he realized after knowing me for a few years that I was a Patriots fan, Man, you, you never really talked about it. Yeah, you know, I never I had no idea you were a Patriots. I took that as a, a real sincere and sweet compliment because I consider myself a fan of the league. I mean, in the case of the Patriots, yeah, I grew up at a time when the Patriots were one of the joke franchises in the NFL. They had a couple of years where they bottomed out, picked first in the draft. They had this owner named Victor Kayam, who was just a really small-minded guy who did some really awful stuff. Uh, the team sexually harassed Lisa Olsen, who was a sports writer in the early 90s. Uh, kind of really stupid and just short-sighted comments about that whole thing. You know, The team several times looked like they were going to move at one point to Hartford, at one point to St. Louis. Uh, they, they even lost money on a Jackson's tour in the mid-80s when Michael Jackson was just with the hottest entertainer going. It was really hard to not be involved with the Jackson family and make money, but somehow the, the Patriots with uh, their ownership found a way to do it. So they were one of the real jokes of the franchise. Think of the franchises that everybody makes fun of now. Think of where the Browns were at, you know, before this whole wave of Mayfield optimism. I mean, they were the joke franchise. And for a while, the Bengals were a joke franchise. The Cardinals were a joke franchise. The Patriots were that franchise for me growing up. And I don't know why so many of the teams I pull for have, have won recently. I would have been happy with one World Series for the Red Sox. When they won in 2004, I felt like my fandom for all time was satiated. By that time, the Patriots had already won a couple of titles. Since then, they've won a bunch more. I understand why everybody who's not a Patriots fan is sick of it. The fatigue sets in. I, you know, I know Belichick isn't the most cuddly guy. I can get why people don't like Brady. There was somebody trolling Brady on Twitter today. I defended Brady a little bit because I, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I, I don't think Tom Brady is the best quarterback of all time. He may have the best resume of all time, but if I was taking an all-time quarterback, I, I would take – John Elway for his physical gifts, or I might take Dan Marino for his pure passing, or I I might take Steve Young because he can do a little bit of everything. I would have no problem with a Peyton Manning pick. But to suggest that like Brady is is just kind of a schlep who just happened to latch on to the right coach at the right time, or somebody was saying oh, he's the luckiest quarterback of all time. I mean, the point is to be competitive every year and give yourself a chance to get a break here or there. I mean, everything can't be like Tiger Woods at his peak where he just demolished everybody and there was nothing fluky about it. I mean, most people win championships because they win some close games along the way where they benefit from a bounce or a break or a missed call or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, any close game, like when people say they'll lose a close fantasy game, they'll say, oh, if I I only played this guy. Well, yeah, it's that. It's also if the NFL had rounded up on a rushing play and called it five yards instead of four, if they had changed a ruling from an interception to a fumble or, you know, the official hadn't picked up a flag you know a touchdown had been a non-touchdown and somebody hadn't gone down with their knee at the one inch line and the coach challenged or didn't challenge if you lose a close game it's eight million different things that led to that and I, i hope people recognize that that if you win any close game in any endeavor there are so many things maybe even things you can't even recognize or identify that contributed to that result
0: yeah so um all right so you're veering away
1: so oh, in other words, Sony Michel—that's my red flag on Sonny Michel. I really answered <laughs> the question well. Uh, he's, you know, had an injury history at Georgia. I'm surprised that the team. I still don't really understand. Um, you know, Belichick and the Patriots are so often right on things, but you know, they draft like any other team. They make mistakes. It's the draft is a very difficult thing to do. I was surprised when they threw capital at a position at a time when the NFL seemed like it was moving away from that. Now maybe it's a zig when you zag thing, but it, I never saw Sonny Michelle as some generational campus miss prospect. I realized he was a late first round pick. It wasn't like they took him fifth overall or something, but they always want to have different running backs. You do different things. We know James white will have a role. I don't think James white is very high upside, but I think he has extremely high floor. They have other talented backs in this, in this team. It's also funny because I, I think it's overblown this whole, oh, the Patriots are backfield. You can't figure it out. I'm just going to throw up my hands. Well, McGarrett Blunt scored 18 touchdowns. Last year, for the most part, James White was a very bankable player. I think usually you can get to projectable volume with this team. But I'm just worried with with, um, Michelle that with the injury history there and with the fact that they're going to siphon off some of the work to other guys, I feel like his ADP hasn't really adjusted to that, and you're buying in at the high end of his range. And anytime you force me to buy in at the high end of somebody's range, it just makes me.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And um, about White, he is always valued less before drafts and then more in season because he is so useful in season. Like just a guy who is always there to plug a lineup hole, and it's so valuable to have someone like that. Once you're into the flow of the season and the the injuries and bye weeks start flying, it it just seems like he can be imminently more valuable than his typical RB 28 ADP would suggest. Um, You know, uh, the
1: key word here is, is trust. And they trust James White. They know what James White can do. They know when they give him an assignment, he does it successfully, you know, almost every time. And, and so those types of players constantly get, I remember once I think it was Belichick said about James White that he thinks like a coach that when James White talks about football and asks questions about football or just dis- dissects the game plan, whatever, you hear a coach talking. You know, I thought that was a huge – I think I have that that quote right. I'm not positive I do, but um, it seems to fit anyway. I've certainly conflated it with James White because I see the same type of player, just somebody who you give him an assignment, it gets done. And I feel like it was a shame that he didn't win the MVP of the year they beat the Falcons in the Super Bowl. Not that Brady was a bad pick, but if you were ever going to give it to a non-quarterback – despite the quarterback playing well, it would have been white that day. And of course, as you know, you know, white was um, one of several running backs from the university of Wisconsin who was uh, effective in recent years. So um, it's fun to see him doing so well in the NFL.
0: It really is. Um, Scott walk me through the top of your wide receiver rankings. It seems like the top five or six guys are all pretty hard to sort out. Uh, Who's number one for you. And is there any point at which you see significant separation, uh, between any of the top five or six guys? Well, the, the first thing I have to
1: reconcile, I, I was just dead set on Hopkins being my number one receiver. And now that he's a little bit dinged up right now, I'm debating putting Devontae Adams above Hopkins. And in that breakfast table MFL that we're doing, I believe you took Adams over Hopkins in the first round. And I'm on, board with, I'm on board with that being perfectly reasonable. I'm not saying I would do it. I think I've already taken Hopkins over Adams in a few leagues, but... I may look to diversify that stance and then just get some Adams too, um, which I, to some people might sound wishy-washy, but I want people to know when I rank guys, like when you look at my rankings and see Hopkins one and Adams two, all that really means is that if I were walking into a draft and it's the first round and the running backs are starting to get depleted and I don't really like the top of the running back board, I'm going to look at these receivers and I'm going to say, okay, Hopkins, Adams, Michael Thomas, you know, just because just I haven't ranked a certain way does not mean I'm dug in on those opinions um, with the case of Hopkins, I just thought his consistency, his health, the fact that he's a dynamic touchdown scorer, and maybe just an offense I felt more bankable. It still sounds weird to not be completely all in on a Aaron Rodgers offense, and I realize that they're at a crossroads now with a new coach, and, and thank God McCarthy is gone. But um, I like Adams a lot, and I hope I have some Adams exposure this year. He's proven to be dynamic at winning in man coverage, against man coverage. And, uh, my colleague Matt Harmon has done a lot of work with that with his reception, perception, grading system. And I think Adams had one of the all-time highest rates of winning against man-to-man coverage since Matt's been doing that. I was like, make a top five all-time ranking. I know this doesn't go back all that far, but, I mean, you know, Matt's grading every play. I mean, I, I take that with great um, significance. And, and also, it's always nice, maybe this is a little bit of confirmation bias, but when you see something with your own eyes and somebody else has a way to get there, that's maybe, you know, you're scouting with your eyes, somebody has some numbers that back it up, quantifies it, uh, you like to see that. I think some people throw the baby out with the bathwater with hot, with um, Adams sometimes where they think, Oh, well, his touchdown rate, that's going to regress his yards per target not that high. I know Chris Liss has been mm-hmm. banging that drum a little bit.
0: Yeah. What was the, what was the stat that Lis was dinging
1: Adams for yards per target? And to which I would say a couple of things. One, I mean, Adams is a, is a possession guy. He's not, you know, he, he's not a nine route guy. And I understand that um, he's not the fastest receiver, but He wins so much on those back shoulder throws. He wins so much in space. He's one of those guys who's open even when he isn't open. And, and, you know, part of that is a really good rapport with Rodgers. But, you know, Rodgers' stats have actually tumbled in recent seasons. Rodgers had a, for him, very mediocre season last year, and Adams had his best season ever. And I look at the touchdowns with Adams, and I know we've we've gotten smarter about touchdowns. People see touchdown rates. They see, like, oh, Tyler Lockett scored how many touchdowns on how many targets and catches, or Mike Williams with the Chargers. You know, that – we know that's going to regress with those guys. They just you can't keep that touchdown rate going forward, but the thing with Adams is that he's so good in tight spaces. He's such the obvious first read in this offense. Teams don't have a way to to cover him or stop him from scoring touchdowns because they'd be doing it already. I feel like in a healthy full season, he's a double digit touchdown guy. I I you don't really project any way to get double digit touchdowns. It's just too hard to do, but He's done it three years in a row, and I feel like you'd have to start the the number would have to start at ten for me, and I think like anything up to like fifteen or sixteen would be possible, especially if in this new offense we saw with the Mike McCarthy offense, they would so often put Adams on his own island and ask him to get open on his own, and the great receivers can play that exposition; they can get open on their own. But what you really like is the coach who provides the cheat code with the route combinations where they do things where they get an easy catch. They get an easy chunk play where the guy isn't really covered because one of his teammates just rubbed off the other guy. and It seemed like Adams very seldom got the benefit of that under the McCarthy regime, and I think the new coaching staff is going to have to use it more often. I think, if anything, Adams Adams may be a better player this year. So a long-winded way of saying I really like Adams, and I'm very close to moving him to the top position on my board. And if nothing else if I faced a bunch of Hopkins Adams decisions, this is like in poker, what you would call balancing. I wouldn't be Hopkins hundred percent of the time. I think I would maybe ideally like to have about 60% Hopkins and 40% Adams. I want exposure to both of these
0: players. I feel the same way. I've, I have very little separating the two of them. And, uh, you know, I know Chris Liss is like a deep thinker. Like he lit super smart, really. Yeah. Very smart guy. And I, I love hearing him think through some things like on his radio show. Um, but I think where yards per target sort of fails here is just the fact that Rogers lost confidence in his uh, peripheral targets to such a great degree last year. Like he was almost making these throwaway throws in Adams direction where it's like, OK, if you can make a great play on this, uh, you know, and sometimes it, it was just a completely uncatchable ball That's the burden of the volume, right? Where you'll throw to Adams when he's covered. You'll throw to
1: Adams as a, I just hope something good happens. So, and then to really put, and I know Chris tried to do this anyway, but if you want to have a stat like yards per target makes sense, you can't compare like Adams with a Tyler Lockett who had 71 targets or whatever it was, because it's not the same thing. Or you'll see a lot of times a number three or a number four receiver on a team will have incredible efficiency on a low amount of opportunity. And it's like, well, they're only throwing it to him when he's wide open. You know, He's not getting the, oh, it's third and 15. We're screwed. Nobody's open. I'm just going to throw it to my playmaker and hope something good happens. So the efficiency, there's a burden of the volume that will ding the efficiency of the best players. I mean, last year, Antonio Brown didn't have a great yards per target. I think that speaks to what he has to deal with too. Again, the burden of that high volume. So
0: how does your board look
1: after Nuke and Adams? I have Thomas three, um, high volume. Uh, Obviously, his his efficiency was ridiculous last year, and it'll be hard to repeat that just because, I mean, I think he had the highest catch rate in history uh, if you go over certain thresholds. But um, I feel like Julio has to be dumped down to four because there's just a reason why there's a touchdown disconnect there. He's going to score some touchdowns, but I just don't feel like a 13, 14, 15 touchdown season is realistically in Jones's range at this point. And if if there's a connection they were going to make, they would have made it by now. So I have him fourth. I have Juju fifth really curious to see how he does without Brown. I think Juju's going to be a good player no matter what, but I'm also a little bit worried about Roethlisberger's kind of getting in that gray area. I might rather be a year early than a year late on Roethlisberger. I'm not sure he's going to age well into his mid to late thirties. I mean, he's been perfectly fine the last couple of seasons. I'm starting to get a little bit nervous about him. I have Beckham at six, but it feels a little bit too popular, trendy. The Browns are such a tinker toy team. And, and look, I get it going from Eli Manning to Baker Mayfield is monumental. It's going from a, a broken black-and-white TV set to, to a high-definition 65-incher. I mean, this is a huge upgrade. But receiver on a new team, sometimes that, that can be uh, an amp-up period, a ramp-up period of, of time before they really get comfortable. And, and Beckham is hard. I, again, I know injury um, natures and you know how many games a player will play. Not everybody's comfortable going down that road. But Beckham, I think it's just one full season since he joined the NFL. So I do have him at six, but I don't think I'll take Beckham a lot. Antonio Brown and Mike Evans, I have seven and eight, and I've been ping-ponging them back and forth. Right now I have Evans a little bit higher, because so I think I just want to bet on Bruce Arians before I want to bet on John Gruden. And I don't think Brown realizes – I know this is total narrative, and, and not everybody will go want to go down this road, but you know, Brown pretty much rode his ticket out of Pittsburgh, couldn't wait to get out of there, and it was a really bad breakup with him and Bell and all that stuff. But Ben Roethlisberger to Derek Carr, I don't think if he realizes how much of a drop down oh, that is. I know, is and, I know. And, uh, on a bet. Great. I'm not the hugest Jameis Winston fan in the world either, but I am a Bruce Arians fan. So I think wanting to bet on Arians and maybe just Evans being younger, I I just feel a little bit more comfortable betting on the younger player. So uh, Evans right now is my seven Browns, my eight. And then I I have Hilton and Tyreek Hill, who I I think we talked about Hill earlier. I I don't think I'm going to draft him very much. I love Hilton as a player. He just has, I think a capped upside for his touchdowns because they don't, He's not going to get schemed a lot of the easy touchdowns. He needs to score from distance. And so you have to expect five to seven from Hilton. Maybe you even get four and you probably never get that 11 or 12 touch.
0: Yeah. The disconnect between Hilton's yardage and touchdowns is is just kind of striking, but it's consistently been that way. So I don't think we should expect anything different this year. Uh, Scott, at the top of the show, you mentioned, you know, the all-star game change in the calendar and, um, seems like a lot of people in the fantasy media have tunnel vision right now. They have the luxury of having tunnel vision because, you know, with training camps opening and the heart of fantasy draft season just a month away, they can focus on football. But you, my friend, you also do this heavy lifting with fantasy baseball on Yahoo, and you're very much dialed in on everything happening in MLB, which takes a lot of effort because, you know, there are games every day. Um you launched this excellent weekly fantasy baseball podcast just a couple months ago. And as good as it is, you're obviously putting a lot of effort into it. So what is this time of year like for you just with baseball and football, both vying for your attention? I mean, you mentioned there's a subtle shift that maybe takes place at the all-star break, but obviously you cannot drop baseball. So is this the absolute busiest time of year for you? It's going to get there soon. Uh, August is really busy. It's
1: just about to start. Uh, and look, I can't complain. I love my job at Yahoo! And the people I work with are really just awesome. Andy Behrens couldn't be a nicer guy. Brad Evans works his absolute tail off. I mentioned Matt Harmon earlier. Liz Loza is the queen of poise. Uh, she's good at everything you throw her into. And Dalton Daldon is about as good a friend as you could have. Would you, James Coe, you may know from the NFL Network. He's got some Yahoo! work. As a correspondent, game. So the same. So, that the people in Jason Kabak are, are editorial, just a great guy. You probably don't know. He's having a lot of the grind up putting into it. I work with an unbelievable crew. I, I, You should envy me the fact that I really like everybody I work with. I know a lot of people do not have that in their jobs. They go somewhere to a job they don't like and with well, things they don't want to deal with. And, you know, my job's a job like anybody else's, but the people around me are so great that I do that. We have some wonderful conversations backstage. It's about to explode. We're working on a mock draft right now. With the staff, we're going to be doing some things called spin doctors uh, starting this week where we take two players where one Yahoo pundits on one side, one Yahoo on the other side, and we kind of have a little cage match try to figure out how we feel about it. Look, we get it. Fantasy football is the behemoth. It's the gorilla in the room of fantasy. But baseball still has a, you know, a really strong audience. It, it's um a little bit different of an audience. When you sign up for a fantasy baseball league, you know what it is it's a seven to eight month month commitment, depending on when you start preparing and if you stick with it for the whole season and I try as best I can. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't do a good job in September with baseball as I'd like to, just because football is so gigantically important, but I really try if you're with me and, and you need my help or, or want my, you know, opinions for baseball, I really try to give you stuff in August and September. It's going to be a little bit less because football is going to be taking a bigger share of the pie, of course, but, um, and this is where Twitter's great, right? Because it used to be the only way, or even my podcast, right? I mean, it used to be the only way, or, you know, radio hits or being on your show. The only way you could get my work 10, 15 years ago is if I wrote an article. You had no other way to get in touch with me. I mean, maybe you could send me something, but now Twitter, it makes the interactions so instantaneous. And what I really try to do is if somebody asks me a good question, I, if somebody asks me a question very particular to their team, you know, I'll try to answer if I can. But you know, the rest of the world doesn't need to know that. But if somebody asks me a question that I feel has wide relevance, you know, then I can quote, t- tweet that. I, I can make that public. I can, I can maybe tackle something in a tweet that in the old days would be like, well, is this time for an article? Is this big enough for an article? You know, Now I can say, hey, I, I think this reliever is worth watching with the Giants. Or I think we're going to see a third base change with, with the Brewers or something. I mean, I, I can get out some quick hit thoughts that don't always fit to the scope of an article. So I think that enables us it makes it easier to do the cross-training that I'm asked to do. And again, labor of love. I have a great job. And uh, I like the fact that the seasons have different cadences to them. If baseball is an everyday sport. I'm glad when the All-Star break comes, I usually take that week off. But then by that Friday, when they finally get back in action, my arm's shaking because I'm missing the daily interaction with baseball. So, um, you know, look, i I probably say I like just about every sport. I'm not really a NASCAR guy. I don't really have anything to offer on the Tour de France, but – you know, I love golf, love hockey. I'm definitely a basketball fan, Um, more college than pro. But I mean, the NBA is a a fun league. Uh, There's always something going on. I think the NBA actually might be more fun off the court than on the court, which is kind of fascinating where the NBA is at right now. But I've been a huge hockey fan. Skates were put on my feet, you know, age two, age three. It's what happened when you grew up in New England. So I like to say I'm always in season. Uh, It doesn't mean I have a lot of days where sports are not on my mind, but that's a choice I've made. Um, I grew up you know, devouring the sports page as a kid, reading with a bowl of cereal at seven in the morning, you know, dying to get trading cards and find out what Dave Winfield looked like or, or what somebody's stats were, you know, what Mark Messier's stats were or something like that. I mean, the Internet is one huge reference book, and it, it made obsolete all these reference books i collected over the years. But yeah, it's a great time to be a sports fan, man. And, and, you know, we can see any game we want now. I mean, it used to be games of the week or, you know, your local TV package might have 40 or 50 games if you were lucky. Now, anything I want to see, not only can I watch it live, but if I missed it, somebody has already posted the video on Twitter and I can see the great catch or I can see the, you know, the play everybody's talking about or whatever's gone viral. So, um, you know, you have to learn how to balance it. You don't want to be plugged in 24-7. You'll drive yourself crazy. But I think in a lot of ways, these are the good old days because we have exposure. Look, I get it. I mean, there's, there's something kind of magical about waking up with the box scores. You don't do that anymore. I already know all the scores and the relevant stats by the time I've gotten up or, you know, 90% of them, I may go to bed for a game once in a while, but having access to the on-demand world, to anything I want to have access to. And, you know, if we were to talk about, Oh, remember that Brett Favre game in 1992. If I go on YouTube, it's there. Or if I go on Twitter, you know, maybe Aaron Nagler has broken it down, you know, or, or somebody who runs a Packers website, I don't even know about. I mean, there's just so much great information there. Football references is just wonderful. Those websites, you know, it's, It's a great time to be a sports fan.
0: It really is. And we uh, came of age, I think, at uh, the same time. And I grew up with box scores in the morning and baseball cards and, you know, only getting to see the Brewers, my hometown baseball team, uh, on TV when they were on the road, since they would not show home games, since they did not want to hurt the home box office. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just a a handful of baseball games a week, like this, the Saturday afternoon game of the week and Monday night baseball, totally different time. Yeah. Now uh, with the MLB package, like I can uh, see pretty much any game I want to see at any time. It's, it's just an embarrassment of riches. Uh, And by the way, just going to say, uh, yeah, you you gave the shout out to the Yahoo crew. And I've got to be friends with a lot of these people, too. Uh, you really do work with a special team over there, Brad and, and Andy and Liz and uh, all these people. I mean, I've gotten to be close with some of them. I've even met Jason, who I know does a lot of great behind the scenes work. I've had a beer with Jason through Andy. So, yeah, uh, you. I'm glad you met Jason. He's really a great guy. I, I like him so much you guys do have a dream team over there. It's fantastic. And Harmon's a great addition to um, Dalton. is is fantastic. I, I love all the people over there. Yes, yeah, so do I. And again, I'm, I'm thrilled that
1: James Coe is joining us this year because he's going to do great work. Let me ask you this as a Wisconsin guy, if you had one championship that you could gift to one of your teams, it would be earned legitimately. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be like an asterisk championship, but I mean, if you could have a, a Bucks title or a Packers title or a Brewers title or something related to the University of Wisconsin, what title would mean the most to you right now?
0: It's got to be a, a Brewers World Series victory, I think, just because the Packers have won two, you know, I've, I've celebrated two Super Bowls and, you know, I, I do feel more of a loyalty to the Packers, I think, than any other team. The Brewers are sort of close, though. Uh, you know, I, I thought, they really deserved to get a World Series during that era they had from 78 to 83 where they were just this fantastic, uh, memorable team. The Robin Yount, Paul Molitor, Raleigh Fingers, Cecil Cooper, Ben game Oglevy seven. teams. Yeah, and, you know, they got to- Gorman Thomas. Yep, Gorman. Uh, they got to game seven of the 82 Pete yeah. Vukovich fantastic teams to grow up with and you know they got to game seven of the 82 series lost to the cardinals didn't have raleigh fingers in that series um so yeah i would wish that for them you know as cool as a wisconsin national championship in football or basketball would be or a box title and uh you know strangely i've i've i never thought i would get close to seeing a wisconsin basketball championship but they actually had duke down by like seven points just a few years ago. Krzyzewski lawyered that second half so effectively, you
1: know, Duke at every call. He really did, man. <laughs> he really did. Oh, I love that with the team. And I love – look, I don't know how you fix it. I, I'm dying for the NBA in college to get together with this one-and-done thing. It just doesn't work. And I realize there are a lot of things at play. But when you see a college basketball team with the players are actually there for more than a minute – And you get to see the cohesion build and you get to know the players that look forward to their upcoming seasons. And that team was filled with, you know, Kaminsky I think was on that team and Sam Decker and I just guys who you'd known for a little bit and got time to grow ties to them and affection to them and, and see them develop as a team and as players. Those are always my favorite teams. I like nothing against, look, Zion Williamson should go pro. I mean, you know, he's got a very short window to make money and to get on with his life and You know, he had a really memorable season at Duke and I don't blame him for what he did. I I actually wanted Zion Williamson to advance in the NCAA tournament while Duke could lose. I know that's an impossibility, but, you know, I have nothing against anybody who goes pro because they realize it's the right move. They're going to be a lottery pick, but I do miss the days where the best players in college or even just good players in college would hang around for two, three or four years. and, And now that window just keeps to be shrinking and shrinking. And I hope I know the NBA wants to get something different in place and I know it's would be better for the college game too. Obviously there's a bunch of things in college that are moving. There's all this lit- litigation going on. And there's been, there's obviously a rock that if you move in college basketball. There's a bunch of underbelly seediness that, you know, sometimes we want to think about sometimes we don't, but I think a better v- version of basketball for all involved would be you know, maybe just let people come out. And if they don't want to come out, look what baseball does. I know it's very much apples and oranges, but baseball, you get drafted out of high school. If you want to go pro right away. And I realized that baseball is a huge problem with not paying the minor leaguers, anything close to what they're worth other than the bonus money. That's a joke. They need to fix that. But baseball says you can come out after your high school, graduate, graduate class, you can get drafted, go pro. If not, you're not draftable for three years. I don't see why something similar to that, even a two year thing wouldn't work for the NBA. If you're good enough to go to the NBA at 18, you know, you're LeBron James. Great. And if, you know, maybe if you don't get drafted, let those people automatically get keep their eligibility. I, I feel like there's something, there's a good solution out there that they the all parties could come to.
0: Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I think with Virginia winning this year and Villanova winning in past years, like it, it's sort of a validation that it doesn't have to be the, the one and done at Duke and Kentucky It's not the only way to get it done. You know, Wisconsin almost got a national championship with a team that really I think Decker was the only guy on that team who left early and he left after his junior year so um you know it it, and we saw teams like that this year do pretty well like Purdue and uh you know I think I don't think there were a lot of early entry guys on on Tennessee which had a fantastic team this year so yep Adam Schofield was a senior even some of the Blue Bloods right I mean North Carolina for some reason has
1: done really well identifying players who can be, I think of Marcus page as a perfect college player where he's impactful right away. And he played for four seasons. Now, the problem is if you try to recruit that type of player, some of them are going to be better than you expect. And then they're going to want to go pro. Like I think of this kid, uh, Tyler hero of Kentucky who came in as a touted prospect, but not, you know, a absolutely celebrated top 10 prospect. And then maybe he ended up being better than people thought he had a really good tournament. of Suddenly, his first round cred, and he comes out. But to me, I think you get more mileage. A lot of times, I'll look at draft, uh, like uh, high school classes, and I'll look at who had the most college war. Just not that war is perfect, but it's a good back of envelope of how much you got out of a player. And the key is always finding that Marcus Page. The problem is, you know, if you recruit in the middle of that tier, some of those guys won't be that good at all, and some of them will outperform what you expect, and then they will be too big for the college game and the want to go pro. So it's not a perfect thing. But it, when you do hit on a Marcus Page or, or somebody like a Kaminsky, whatever, I think this is a huge advantage.
0: It hurt that you mentioned Tyler Hero because he was a Wisconsin verbal commitment. and then really? went his, he, was, he was. He was a Milwaukee kid, and he was going to go there. But I don't blame him. I mean, he blew up the summer before his uh, senior year of high school, like in AAU basketball. And I don't blame him for getting the exposure, and now he's lighting it up in the summer league. So God bless him. Is he really? Yeah, I remember watching him, not being that familiar
1: with him, but seeing him more in the tournament and thinking that guy, I I can't wait to see him play next year. I thought at Kentucky, but then again, he was too good and his stock went through the roof. And, you know, once he realized he could be a first round pick, I don't blame him for.
0: He's terrific. Well, Pina, we have to get to this draft we're going to have. But first, I have to ask you one more question. And we were talking about baseball just a second ago. You coined this great term a while ago for guys who provide boring but dependable fantasy value. You call them the Ibanez All-Stars. And for those unfamiliar with the name Ibanez, Raul Ibanez was an outfielder who had almost a 20-year career, much of it with the Mariners, some of it with the Royals and Phillies, and was just so consistent year after year. Usually about 20 home runs, 90 RBI, a 280 or 290 average, but always affordable in fantasy drafts, whether it was because he didn't play for a high profile team or never showed up on the leaderboards, uh, at the top of the leaderboards, I guess, in any categories. So, who are your Ibanez All Stars in fantasy football this year? Do you sort of have a list of guys uh, you've been getting in best balls or maybe in the Scott Fishbowl draft who just Boring value guys who you really like the price on. I appreciate the
1: nice little lead into that. Uh, yeah. You know, boring value is kind of my jam. Um, I know a quarterback, it's really hard to not like your quarterbacks, but I think I'm going to have a lot of Matt Ryan this year. He may not be a, a direct Abania's fit because everybody's going to have him in their top 10 of quarterbacks, but I look who he's around. You know, Baker Mayfield, there's a lot of buzz about them. Uh, people are going to be optimistic about what Rogers will do in a new offense. I actually do love the Carson Wentz setup. I know he was on our original shot sheet, but you know, cause I can't give a tidy answer to anything. We didn't get to it, but even though Philadelphia has a really crowded usage tree, that's it's one of my favorite things to talk about is, is it, is a team wide with who they give the ball to, or is it condensed where it's only a few guys? I think back to the Mark Trestman bears where you'd see a box score for the bears. It would be incredibly short because they just focused on four guys. They had, Uh, Two primary receivers, Matt Forte never came off the field. Martellus Bennett was their tight end, and that was it. They weren't giving the ball to a fullback. They weren't giving the ball to a satellite back. They weren't throwing the passes to third and fourth receivers, and it made for very high projectable volume. So uh, Wentz is a guy I do like, even though Philadelphia is a little bit all over the map. I think it's going to be hard for me to talk myself into almost any skill player in that team, but I want Wentz. Uh, Ryan is, is the boring value that I see at quarterback. And again, he's a little bit maybe too famous to fit this frame but I would put him here. Uh, I think Chris Carson is disrespected in Seattle, really effective last year. And people want to talk themselves into Penny. Penny could still be a good player. This team wants to run the ball more than any contending team I can think of. And they lost Davis. He, he's out of the building now. So there's a lot more touches to go around. I think Carson is a guy who's just been around James White, probably a, a really good Evanyas all-star because he's never going to be a priority. Nobody goes into a draft like you know, James White. He's going to be my guy. You know, you just kind of take him when he's there and, and he's somebody you can usually rely on. Uh receivers, I think Marvin Jones might have some Abanya's juice. Last year if you prorate what he does for a full season, he would have had a perfectly acceptable fantasy season. He just half the year he didn't play and Matt Stafford was hurt for a decent chunk of the season. Now Stafford's still dealing with some stuff off the field that that might make him his focus. He's got some issues with his wife where she's not feeling well. She's uh she's battling cancer, I want to say. I don't know exactly the state of that and I feel sorry to, to talk about it without having all the facts. I mean, Stafford's a really good guy, and um, I wish his family the best. But um, I still think he's a much better player than what he showed last year. I think Marvin Jones probably comes along for the ride. Austin Hooper probably hasn't been around long enough to be a Banya's all-star, but I think he's going to be a great value at tight end just because the touchdowns haven't been there. But remember, they prioritize him as a two-point option, and that to me shows latent touchdown upside. I, I don't think Julio Jones has a 12, 13 touchdown season in him. I know Calvin Ridley got to 10 last year, but the percentage was really high. You think that might drop a little bit. I think Hooper already is a really safe bet because of the volume. And I'm willing to write off the low yards per reception because he got so many catches I think he got 71 balls last year. That shows that he's where Matt Ryan looks when a play hasn't worked out. They're just trying to get rid of the ball. I'll take all those cheap catches I can, especially when PPR is becoming more of a standard in our industry. And again, with the two-point conversions that they've used Hooper on, I think that shows late in touchdown upside. I think he might have a seven or eight touchdown season in him, and there's nothing about his resume that's going to make you pay for that. He's in the fourth year, I believe, of a tight end career, are usually a good time where that's a position where if they do anything early in their career, you're so happy because it's such a difficult position. I never drive rookie tight ends pretty much for that reason. So uh, I think he's going to be a good value. And you know, Kyle Rudolph I was probably going to be out on, but once the Vikings – resigned him to a big deal i obviously they say drafted a prominent rookie tight end but you just never expect that much from those guys i think they might go back to rudolph being that five to eight touchdown guy in the red zone probably a boring 500 600 yards but i think kyle rudolph might be just another one of those really unsexy nobody will get mad at you when you pick him, but he'll be useful for you especially when you're looking for that second tight end in the best ball league
0: yeah, well, wow. really good series of picks and a bunch of guys who um, your reasoning is great. And with all those guys, yeah, they're they're not the sort of picks that draw um, you know jealous jealous reactions from the rest of the room when you take them, but they do provide value. Um, all right, Scott, I mentioned your fantasy baseball pod earlier, and you came up with a great idea for it. At the end of every episode, you have a two-person draft with your guest where you pick a category and draft from it. I've heard you do it with albums and things related to the Dodgers and things related to golf and TV dads. Such a great idea that I wanted to shamelessly steal it for this episode. And because I know you're a big music guy whose tastes in bands are pretty similar to mine, and because this podcast is done in association with The Football Girl... I thought it would be fun to do a quick five-round draft of female vocalists. So uh, I did give you the category, of course, before the show. And uh, as the guest, Scott, you can have the first pick. I appreciate that. Um,
1: I want to say up front that although I'm proud of, of the draft idea and I've been somebody who's been ranking things, and we used to do this when we would drive. When I lived in New England, we would drive to the newly formed Foxwood Casino, which was like 100 miles away. And we would do these drafts. We would say, okay, best Led Zeppelin songs, go. And we'd go back and forth and all that. So uh, it's it's something I've been doing for a long time. But it's also, this is not a new thing. I mean, uh, the movie with John Cusack, High Fidelity, that was all top uh, five lists. When they interviewed me for Yahoo and they said in the middle of the interview, not 2008, what can we do better? I didn't have an answer for that. And all of a sudden it popped in my head that they used to do this thing called high fives, which was a bunch of top five lists. And they had gone away from that. And I said, you know, you guys, you should do something called high fives. I don't know why you went away from it. And the two people interviewing me looked at each other and they go, we love high fives. Yeah, we should bring that back. And I thought, wow, I don't know where that answer came from, but it's a sincere one. Um, there are other people who do these types of drafts. Uh, Joe Posnanski and Michael Schur do one on their podcast. You know, I answer, some people probably hear my thing and they think I'm ripping those guys off. I mean, I think top five lists and ranking things and going back and forth. I think it kind of belongs to everybody but I just want to acknowledge I'm not the only person in this spear and I don't want to act like I'm you know, Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, throwing a flag down. So uh, much props to other people who are in this space. And I just think it's fun. Uh, I get a lot of good feedback on the drafts. A couple of the people I've drafted with have come up with their own ideas. Fred Zinke came up with the idea to draft all time Fred's. That was a lot of fun. I mean, that's the whole point is to have fun with these things. So, um, so I don't keep this podcast going to three hours because I can't give any succinct answer. Let me try to get to my picks here. My first pick, and look, I'm, I'm going to try to pick my team. This is not meant to be the draft that everybody would use. I'm, I'm not trying to win the Mel Kuyper you know, post draft you know A plus grade here. I'm, I'm trying to pick a team that fits the scheme I want to run. So, my first pick is going to be Amy Winehouse. I think back in Back to Black is an incredible, self aware album about somebody who's unhappy and spiraling out of control. And so, it's a part of it is, a, you know, we're picking vocalists, but I mean, I, I can't. Separate the fact that she's an amazing songwriter and so honest in what she does and just her delivery, her voice, her ability to to bout out such a range. I'm still blown away by Amy Winehouse. I found her music highly ironic even before what ultimately happened. And now that she's gone and I weep for the songs we're never going to hear from Amy Winehouse. I just thought she was an extraordinary talent. and uh, I want her on my team round one.
0: Yeah, I have this great memory of uh, we were in... St. Andrews in 2008 on a golf trip and had played a, a real early round. And we were sitting in the Jigger Inn, which is adjacent to the road hole at the old course and uh, just day drinking and playing cards and enjoying the day. And this already uh, would have been the best day of my life. But go ahead. yeah, it was a pretty good day. And the uh, young bartender puts on uh, back to black and i could not think of a better day drinking in scotland album than that i mean it's just she was such a throwback too with that style that that soul and jazz sound that she did so well uh i agree i I, you know feel bad about the music we didn't get from her and i think scott that uh tuesday is actually the eighth anniversary of her death death and it's hard to believe she's been gone that long i know i know um all
1: right, I've got to go. By the way, I know I know we had preemptively talked about maybe doing a little British Open discussion, but I'm a I'm a huge golf fan, and I um, I've always wanted to make that European golf trip. Haven't done it. I'm not sure if it will get crossed off my bucket list. And I'm a big believer in if you wait for the perfect time to do anything in life, you'll probably never do anything. So I, maybe at some point, I just have to admit, yeah, maybe I can't afford this. Maybe it's not the best time to take a vacation. Whatever. At some point, I just need to get over there. I, mean, I don't care if I go by myself, although you'd want to go with your peeps and everything, but um, America has a great version of golf. Golf started somewhere else. I we do respect that.
0: Yeah, I hope you can make it happen, man. Golf in, in, Scott, in Scotland and, and St. Andrews in particular is just very I We special. should play around together at some point. I, I would really oh, like that, too. We have to make that happen, absolutely. Um, all right, for my first-run pick, I, I think I have to go with the – You know, there are only a handful of vocalists who can just like make, give me goosebumps with their voice. And so I've got to go with one who can, and that is Sinead O'Connor. I think she just has the absolute best voice of any female singer, Uh, such incredible range. And just, I remember the impact of The Lion and the Cobra when that came out in 87. And, uh, you know, Mandinka was her big single I Want Your Hands On Me was a big song for her on that one. Um, she even did a reggae album in the mid-2000s called Throw Down Your Arms that I really like. You know, an, an Irish woman singing reggae. You'd think that would, could never possibly work, but it does. Um, so I'm going with Sinead. Kind of a interesting personal side to her, but uh, as far as just the pure voice, like I can't pick anyone else.
1: It's a great pick. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say... Four, five, six, seven. Eight. I have 10 people on my quote unquote board. They're not necessarily ranked in any specific order, although I I knew Amy Winehouse was going to be my first pick. But I don't have Sinead O'Connor on my list. But because we're on this of the same age, I grew up, I was raised on rock and roll as a high schooler and then alternative rock as a college person. So I was very well versed in Sinead's two really big albums. And I think people a generation or so after us may not realize just how gigantic a star she was at the time and you know kind of her watershed social moment was when she was on Saturday Live and she controversially ripped the picture of the Pope and you know she was not afraid to take stances uh, some of which uh, she regretted later in her life but at one point she was just a gigantic star she was I don't know if she ever won the Rolling Stone Artist of the Year I don't really necessarily care about awards like that but she was capable of winning something like that that's how big of a star she was. And her range, I, I remember my roommate in college, David Mears, talking about the first time you he heard Sinead. He's like, this chick has balls. I, was, I don't know how else to say it. I don't, I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. But um, she had a lot of nerve. You would say you know, she had the nerve of a burglar, you might say. Um, put herself out there with stances. Still has a lot of songs I listen to today. And I don't really know what went wrong. I know she had some some personal problems, some emotional problems. She wasn't really happy with her life at one point. I mean, who really is? I mean, we're all battling that on some level. But um, so I don't really know why her career maybe didn't have the arc that would have been nice to have. Because I I feel like she could have easily by now had 10, 12, 14 albums and we'd be drafting Sinead O'Connor albums. And you can't really do that. She doesn't have the resume for that. But her peak was very, very high. I think that's an excellent pick. And I'm embarrassed that I didn't have her on my board because there's a time in my life where I was a huge Sinead O'Connor. Again, this is going to speak to my respect for her as much as a musician as it is for her actual voice. But at at one point, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't draft her. But and I thought, wait a minute, she's got all the pitches. Um, I've mentioned her on my own podcast. Chrissy Hine, lead singer of the Pretenders. Uh, She's a punk rocker. She's a straight rocker. She's a a pop singer. Um, She can be threatening. She can be vulnerable. Um, She can break my heart. I mean, she has so many different pitches. I have so much respect for that band. And um, I don't know, the Pretenders have meant, I have a lot of music in my, in my music player and there's stuff that I always listen to and stuff that I sometimes skip. And sometimes there's stuff that I skip a lot and wonder why it's even in my music player to begin with. Not only do I never skip the Pretender songs, I often play them multiple times in a row. That's how great of a song Talk of the Town is. That's how great of a song Message of Love is. That entire first album grabs you by the throat and uh, again, you know, they're punk, they're rock, they're pop. Uh, they have accessible, tidy songs. They have longer songs that are more ambitious. And just about every emotion I can have as a human being, I feel like Chrissy Hine has tapped into at some point. And mostly, you know, it's overall because of her musicianship, but I mean,
0: certainly her voice plays into that. So I got to have Chrissy Hine on my team. She has such... a. An interesting backstory, where she comes from Akron, Ohio, and I think she was in a band with Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo while she was a student at Kent State, and but then she spends like all this time in the years after college, after she dropped out in London, and she's like trying to hook up with a band, and like all these things keep falling through on her, and. Uh, I think at one point she was almost going to marry Sid Vicious so she could stay over in England or something like that and extend her visa. And, uh, you know, she was in the band that later became The Damned and she got kicked out right before they took off. And I think she was right before the clash formed. She was maybe going to start some sort of band with Mick Jones. And I wonder how the course of music history would have changed if that would have happened. Because Number one, we get no Clash and no Pretenders. I'm sure a Mick Jones-Chrissy Hind project would have been awesome, but, man, it's just uh, amazing to think what could have been. All right, for me, number two, I've got to go with Stevie Nicks. Kind of a chalk pick um, for someone who grew up in rock, but just such a distinctive voice. I mean, I think, to me, peak Fleetwood Mac. Maybe you would pick a different song, Scott, but i got to go with Rhiannon. And, you know, that's all Stevie's voice and Lindsey Buckingham's guitar. And I just I even remember what a hit Belladonna, her first solo album was back in the early 80s with. Um, um, oh, man, what was the name of the song? White, it's not White Winged Dove, uh, Edge of 17, maybe. Oh, thank you. Edge of 17. I was just completely drawing a blank. Huge hit. What a great title, too, by the way. Yeah. The, the Stop Dragging My Heart Around went with Petty was fantastic. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'm going with Stevie Nicks is kind of a chalk pick, but uh, she's terrific. She's a great pick. Uh, she's on my board. The main reason why I probably wasn't going to pick Nicks,
1: I put her on my board just, just in case you took all the people I was going to pick ahead of her. It's just this one thing I can't get past. And it's really not a knock on Nicks. You don't necessarily have to choose sides, but to me, Mick, um, not Mick but to me, Lindsay Buckingham is the person in this band who speaks the most to me. The songs that are Buckingham songs are generally my favorite songs by Fleetwood and Mac, although obviously, uh, Rihanna's a, a killer. And they have so much, I mean, Rumors still holds up as a Watershed album, uh, really an A to Z album. I, I think there, there's maybe one song on it that doesn't do anything for me, but you know, the rest of it is fantastic. But I think what really gets me going on that album is, secondhand news the first song which is buckingham and then later go your own way which is buckingham and that album is you know a bunch of people breaking up doing drugs mad at each other you can almost visually see them flipping each other off the whole album uh, there are times where they would play certain songs live and buckingham and nicks will like they were just going to tear each other's throats off because they were so mad at each other and yet remember emotional pain is the most amazing muse you know it's harder to write a happy song than it is a breakup song or a frustrating song. Um, I think this band understood how to channel the discord in, in between themselves and their relationships and get incredible music out of it. So I feel very lucky that we were along for the ride and I have just kind of mixed feelings that Lindsay Buckingham was thrown out of Fleetwood Mac recently. He's also had some vocal problems. I don't, I don't know where he's at uh, with his health or even if he'll be able to perform again, but uh, Buckingham, I'm such a Buckingham guy that it, it maybe dings nicks a little bit for me and that might not be completely unfair I mean, I can't imagine anybody else being at the front of this band as far as the, you know, just her being the rock diva that she is. And, um, yeah, sometimes a little bit overindulgent. But um, ulti- ultimately, I mean, she's monumentally important in rock history, and she did it on her own as well. She had a really accomplished solo career. And um, so I think it's a great pick. I just – the thing for me is just, I'm such a Buckingham guy that I almost feel like you're going to be on one side of the fence and I'm going to be on the Buckingham side of the fence, but that doesn't mean Nix isn't a great pick. Cause I think she certainly is.
0: That's fair. That's very fair. All right. Third round. Wow. This is hard. Um,
1: I have a lot of different people I could pick. Yeah. I'm going to take Dionne Warwick going back a generation. She speaks to, and, and this is the musician Dionne Warwick, not the, not the person who wants to sell you psychic friends help. At, uh, at 2 a.m. on the inf- infomercial networks. But there's something to be said for a perfectly constructed pop song. You mentioned the class earlier, and sometimes I hear the song Train in Vain, which is a song I never really thought about that much. And then one day I realized just how perfect it was and how there was no wasted space in it. And uh, Dionne Warwick has a lot of songs like that. And you know her work with Burt Bacharach and, and some of the musicians she worked with, uh, I just feel like she hit the right notes. I, I find her music very relaxing. The catalog of it is gigantic. I, I love so many pop songs from the 60s and 70s. I love a ton of AM rock, too, by the way. Like Brandy comes on by um, Looking Glass. I'm always in. One time my friend did the karaoke. I thought it was a great choice. Illinois guy. But um, there's a lot of people here I could pick. I'm going to feel bad for some of the people I don't pick. But Dionne Warwick, because she symbolizes, I mean, obviously, an unbelievably crystal voice, but you know, I just love the work she did with, with Burt Bacharach, one of the greatest songwriters we've ever seen. When Dionne Warwick comes up on my player, I play it. Uh, when I'm trying to get work done or write or get into a good mood or relaxed mood, her music always works for me. Uh, I could have picked a lot of other people who are contemporaries of hers, and, and I probably won't pick them, just in the interest of diversity. So my apologies for some of those monsters that I'm keeping out of this. And this one gigantic person who, who recently died, who it's it's going to be criminal if I don't take her. but. I'm opting for Dionne Warwick round three.
0: Yeah, that's uh my, I grew up with my mom having a lot of Dionne Warwick albums in the house. So, uh, that's, that's a good call. I, I, that definitely takes me back to childhood. Um, with my third round pick, this is maybe, this is sort of a get your guy pick where you're reaching a little bit, but, um, this is my get your girl pick. Cause I'm a little worried to be honest, Scott, that you might take her a little later. Cause, uh, it's going to be Tanya Donnelly. Oh God! I have misplayed this draft. I've lost. I don't know if people grade these things. Just a voice. That-
1: I wasn't sure that you were a Donnelly person. Oh, this this is such a miscalculation no. on my part. You know what? I'm announcing. Dion Warwick actually has refused to play for my <laughs> franchise, and I, I'm going to try to take Tanya Donnelly instead. Is that? I can't do that, can I? I can't.
0: Well, good. You'll be able to to second this for me, but oh, um, between between belly and throwing muses and the breeders, I mean, her voice is just a, a voice. It just takes me back instantly to um, the '90s and just a really good time in my life. And um, you know, just phenomenal voice. Uh, you know, one of those goosebump voices. Just absolutely the highlight of any band she's ever been in and i I know none of those bands are like rock hall of fame material but um you know she was just such a great distinctive voice of the 90s and uh you know i I miss hearing her voice regularly god i really screwed this up because if somebody said to me okay scott
1: you have to make a choice you lose all the dm warwick music or you lose all the tanya donnelly related music i I would pick tanya donnelly 100 times out of 100 i'm not meaning to be war work. but I guess I, you know, I guess I, I know you pretty well, but I don't know you well enough to be sure if I, if I knew you had any inclination to belly at all, or Tanya Donnelly at all, throwing muses. Again, you mentioned all the banshees done. I would have made that pick. And just somebody who, and, and by the way, that they were pretty big at one point. In fact, I remember there was a Rolling Stone cover and I, and I mentioned this just as a sense of how do you monitor, what's the perception of how big somebody is and, to me, growing up, it was, oh, they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated or on the cover of Rolling Stone. Belly was a big enough band that when they released one of their albums, I think it was the King album, um, Belly Gets Big was the title on Rolling Stone and, and Tanya Donnelly's photograph, really great guitar player too. If somebody's listening right now and has no sense of who Tanya Donnelly is, what I would suggest is get, it, get yourself a copy of Love Songs for Underdogs or even if you don't want to play the whole album, just play a song called Goat Girl which is just this really tidy, concise love song that she writes this rueful love song uh, about being stuck on somebody. And it's beautiful. It's just a tiptoe. It's so well constructed. I love her voice. I love the way she arranges the song. I love that she's a legitimate guitar player with Bonafide. I mean, she's a legitimate rock and roll star, but there's a tenderness to Tanya Donnelly. that's always worked for me. I like every band she's been in and um, it, it hurts not to have her on my team. I, you know, again, I have miscalculated great pick in round three. And, and again, I think it shows just why, how we have so much stuff in common. This is why we should play golf. So, you know, on the fifth hole, when I've, I've just dunked one in the water and I've, I'm, I'm three down to you already, at least we can talk about John Donnelly. With that in mind, I think I need to get more personal with this draft and not run the risk of missing people I want to draft. So I'm going to take Harriet Wheeler, who uh, was the lead singer of the Sundays, a, a band that has a tiny catalog. I mean, I talked about why didn't Sinead do more music. I think the Sundays might have just two albums, and I I really don't have much from their second album, but their first album was an album called Reading, Writing, and Arithmetic. I like every song on that album, and that's not an exaggeration. Ten songs on the record, I like all ten of them, some more than others. I can even tell you that I Kick the Boy is two minutes and 18 seconds long. I I love songs that don't wait time. Not that songs all have to be short, but you know, Fell in Love with a Girl by The White Stripes is 150 Not, and they They cram everything into it, and they really get the most out of it. What a great song. Even the video is good. It's been a long time since I've said that. But anyway, that that album meant a lot to me. It still means a lot to me. I went to see the Sundays in my mid-20s with a really good friend of mine. I wore a shirt that my mom had given me, which was my favorite shirt at the time. I, I met a girl that night who we had a lot in common, and we went back to her apartment and talked on her couch all night. I think I kissed her at like six in the morning when I was leaving. And she said to me, I was wondering when you're going to do that. But, you know, this is not a tawdry hookup story. This was, I found somebody interesting and we talked all night. It was great. I spent the night with my best friend watching watching the Sundays. They played the whole record of a record I already knew by heart and loved. And it was at a place called The Paradise, which was a wonderful venue in Boston. I think it still exists. And, you know, I I probably saw this band with like 600 and it wasn't crowded at all. And um, so I guess maybe part of that memory ties into this but i already love the album the sundays are great that record is great i don't know where they really didn't go anywhere i think harry just decided to go have a different kind of life and didn't want to be a rock star um, or a pop star but uh, that's an unbelievable album it it spoke to me then it speaks to me really really mad about this donnelly thing but i'm gonna lock up harriet wheeler in the fourth round
0: (laughs) she's got a great voice and i'm embarrassed to say i didn't know her name i that's just a complete oversight on my part but yeah the the sun is fantastic um let's see i've i've already got uh one irish lass on the roster i think i have to add another uh uh-huh. rest in peace dolores O'Riordan. yeah uh just another incredible voice the cranberries um boy i keep going back to the 1990s but uh also another band that sort of evokes a, a certain period in time for me and um you know i i do think that's kind of music's gift to us, the way it can transport us back to great times in our lives. And uh, Dolores O'Riordan and the Cranberries really do that for me. Um, She died, what was it, two years ago? But um, yeah, which too bad, Um, you know, as with so many musicians apparently sort of troubled and and might have had some uh, substance issues and and just, you know, shame. But uh, the Cranberries made some really good music back in, that era,
1: yeah, it's funny if if you go to one of the aggregate, one of the music aggregators where they say if you like this band, you might like this band. I would say if you plugged in sinead O'Connor and you plugged in the Sundays, you know, the Cranberries would probably be the next band that gets spit out. And then, you know, they're contemporaries and they have some overlap. in And I think that's a great pick. And gone too soon. I mean, she she died in her um her mid forties. I you know had more to contribute. And man, talk about range. You know, and when I hear the song, when you hear the song Dreams, which was one of their bigger radio hits from that Everybody Else Is Doing It, So Why Can't We? What a great album title, too. It's kind of clunky and awkward, but I still think it's a great album title. The song is is, um, is talking about some difficult choices in your life and where you are with some certain things, but it sounds so pleasant because it's arranged so well and she has such a great voice. But then at the end of the song, there's this just caterwauling screaming that I think just reminds everybody that we don't have everything figured out. And I'm not really sure where this is going. And, and sometimes you'll hear that song on satellite radio or on a, a different music player and they'll cut out the end of it. And, and look, I don't like long fade outs. Like I think of the emperor's new clothes, a song by Sinead O'Connor that has this really long fade out. As much as I like the song, I think it should be like 40 seconds shorter when they play dreams. I want to hear the whole thing. I think you need to see the light in the dark with that song. And I think there was a lot of light and dark with Dolores O'Riordan. And it's sad to see that she went, before her time I think it's a great pick and again you know it just shows that we've lived a lot of common experiences and listened to a lot of the same bands you know the, the music I was listening to at WBRU from the Brown radio station I didn't go to Brown but um, they had the killer radio station so I listened to it, it was probably very similar to what, you know, whatever Wisconsin radio you were listening to in your college years because we're about the same age so I, I think that's a great pick and were certainly a that I cared about I don't really know what to do with this fifth pick um and I know there's somebody, there's somebody I'm, I'm going to leave off. There's somebody I haven't thought of. I try not to overly research these things in the sense of, you know, to make it like I'm just copying some list off the internet or whatever. I, I feel like they have to be somewhat organic. So I, I put a bunch of people on the list. I'm going to take Tori Amos. It's not even that I have that many Tori Amos songs that I love, but I, the songs that I like by her, I absolutely adore. And every time I listen to silent all these years and which is a song that has to be listened to from the beginning to the end you, you don't pick up silent all these years in the middle. you have to listen to it all the way and you have to struggle with it and you have to feel what she's feeling and the pain and the nuance and the optimism and the things that you're scared about there's just so much going on in that song and the fact that she pulls it off and her voice conveys so many emotions and uncertainty and being scared and, and being hopeful and I don't know. She's she's amazing. She's an again. It's not that every Tori Amos song works for me. I don't have her entire catalog. There's some of her popular songs don't work for me. But um, just even even on Silent All These Years alone, there's a handful of other songs by her I like a lot. But somebody who can create a song like that and can release that many emotions in the world
0: and do so much that she does in that song, I'm blown away. And a marvelous pianist too. I mean, she is a phenomenal, like virtuoso piano player and uh yeah like Under the Pink and Little Earthquakes are just fantastic albums and um you know I I do great titles too Little Earthquake what a great title I do love it when she sort of rocks out to and indulges that side with like Cornflake Girl I mean fantastic song oh my god big fan of Cornflake Girl um yeah I feel like I could go a bunch of different ways either I my wife really kind of got me into Alicia Keys and I enjoy her music. Uh, Certainly Aretha Franklin would be a good choice. I'm going to go a little chalkier um, and finish with Madonna. And I can't say I'm the biggest Madonna fan. I think my wife has some of her music, which thus has, has, you know, made it uh, into my collection at times too. But just she has churned out hit after hits and my God, she was just a hit machine in the 1980s and um and then she just kind of kept reinventing herself which is admirable she just didn't stand still she kind of kept growing and evolving and uh you know she's still at it i really respect the career she's had and everything she's done and you know i i enjoyed a lot of her hits you know even if i was not actively seeking out her music um know, I do feel like, in a way, a a lot of her songs are part of the soundtrack of my life. It's a great pick. Um,
1: Madonna is unquestionably important. I I think she's more important to me than she is somebody who I seek out. But I mean, she reinvented herself so many times, and she could play so many different styles. And I think we underrate as just when we do culture things that we underrate the person who can crank out hit after hit after hit. We don't realize, like, what Elton. I think now we're at a time where Elton John is fully being celebrated. But there's a time where Elton John just had all these hits, and people didn't stop and think, oh, my God, how long has he been doing this? How many great songs has he churned out with his uh, songwriting partner, Bernie Toppin, who's obviously very talented, too? But Madonna has a million songs that you know. Even if you're not a Madonna fan, you know them. And she's crossed over into, into acting, and she's been relevant through different stages of her life. I mean, she, she's just an important person. You know, people, I hope in school, like they study things like Madonna, you should know something about Madonna. Somebody recently on Twitter, and I forget who it was, somebody probably around our age in their forties was, was talking about being with friends of their children or something. and, And some, somebody who was 13 or 14, I want to say, didn't know who Madonna was at all. That makes me sad that that shouldn't be true. You know, that'd be like not knowing who Obama was someday or, you know, I mean, she's just a watershed person who was important and did a lot of different things. I don't know if you have to be a certain age, maybe to realize how gigantically popular she was at one point in time. She was the number one star in pop music at one point. And she held it for a long time. And again, constantly reinventing herself. So I, I respect Madonna more than I like her, but I, I have a lot of respect for. Her. Uh, I'll just quickly mention some of the people I didn't pick. People are going to laugh when I mention Karen Carpenter, because there's a little bit of schmaltziness with the Carpenters. But you know what? When she sings a sad song, it makes me sad. She ha- she really can convey emotions with her. And then you know the the way her life went. And She was trying to get healthy. And, and you know, she had been stung by an early review that said she was heavy, even though she wasn't. And you know, All the unfairness that women have to deal with with their bodies, where they're subjected to this crazy standard by marketing. And they grew up not liking themselves. It's, it's an awful thing. Uh, she had an angel's voice. I mean, I think her brother might have been kind of a creep and stuff, but... Uh, Karen Carpenter could definitely tug at my heartstrings. Uh, Aretha Franklin, if I was trying to draft a team maybe more for the rest of the world than myself, I would have taken her. Um, un- unbelievably important and just a very powerful voice and uh, tremendous respect for her catalog and just I don't I don't love her catalog so much as I respect it, but I mean this is a bunch of songs every time I hear respect for example, I just immediately turn that up as loud as I can. Um a lot of smarter set had one gigantic album that was really important to me. I think I might like her more as what she stands for and as a songwriter than maybe her voice. But Jagged Little Pill is just filled with great songs A to Z. I feel like I need to, to mention that. Uh, I had Janis Joplin on this list. I had Jules Sabule, who I like a lot on this list. The only famous person I met when I lived in California for 14 months and to be set for that. And I'm sure there's a million great uh, female musicians who I haven't mentioned. I, I even have a soft spot. I wouldn't draft her, but I even have a soft spot for Susanna Hoffs. Um, not, not Walk Up in Egyptian. That's a bad song. But you know, Hero Takes Fall is a great song. Their cover of Hazy Shade of Winter is one of the greatest covers, I think, in rock history. She did some work with Matthew Sweet. I'm sure you're probably a big Matthew Sweet guy. They did a couple of albums, like two or three albums called Under the Covers, where they covered music. Um, their version of Cinnamon Girl is outstanding. I think the Bangles are underrated. And again, part of it is when a band gets popular for a song that's kind of cheesy, like Walk Like an Egyptian, it's easy just to treat them as insignificant. But they, their catalog was actually sneaky good. I feel the same way about the Go-Go's. I feel like they have more good songs than people realize, and they hold up maybe a little bit better than people realize. So there's a couple of 80s new wave bands that I think don't get their full credit.
0: I do want you to know, p that that uh, even if you're upset that you got snaked on... Tanya Donnelly in this draft, Chrissy Hind and Amy Winehouse were both top five on my board. So, you know, they had you let them last a little bit longer, I definitely would have snapped them up. So, uh, I, I shouldn't I didn't know what to do in the third round. What happened is the
1: clock was ticking down. And I said, I, I get it, you know, and look, we've all done this, right? I didn't feel the cue, right? The clock's ticking down. Oh my God, I don't even know who ADP has. <laughs> you know, they're going to force me to come and I don't want. You know, I, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to, Katie Perry's going to come up or something, you know, <laughs> no, I get to pick somebody. You know, we'll work. Should have picked picked Don.
0: Oh, Just but, uh, 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 presaging the problems we're going to be having in the weeks to come as we get into more and more fantasy football drafts. And
1: uh, was there anything left on your board, by the way, did you have anybody else down? Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I had uh, Alicia Keys, who I mentioned before, Aretha Franklin, um, Adele, who's just got, a uh, phenomenal voice. Oh, she's her
1: range, her range. If you were to talk about who's the best singer, I mean, she's unfreaking.
0: Oh, she can bring the thunder, man. Um, really looking forward to hearing more music from her and uh, Sarah McLaughlin, who uh, I've actually seen a couple of times just because she plays yep. this. So yeah, yep. she plays like this outdoor. public <laughs> Ecstasy is a great record. I still like
1: most of the songs on it.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Surfacing is pretty good. Um, yeah, Just a terrific voice. So. Yeah, had, had we gone 10 rounds, I think those would have been names that would have been brought up. But, um, well, Scott, we did go overtime, even with the draft only being five rounds. Uh, and thank you so much for hanging in, and thank you so much for making a return appearance. Uh, when I decided it was time to circle back to some of the people I'd had on earlier, my thoughts immediately turned to you. I always enjoy our interactions, and uh, I'm grateful we have gotten to be friends in recent years, even if we haven't met in person yet and... That is something I hope to remedy very soon and hopefully over a round of golf.
1: Yeah. Sounds great to me. I'm right back at you. Um, the next time there's some sort of Chicago related event for the fantasy, I'm going to really try. I mean, there's people I just haven't met yet that I feel like I should have in person, like you, like Evan Silva, It's such a great fantasy scene and, and just writing sports writing scene in Chicago. Obviously Andy's from there. My, my colleague Jason is from there. So it'd be great to see those guys too, but we'll definitely try to do that. And, um, just keep doing what you're doing, man. Um, you know, the best compliment I can give you other than the fact that you're you know you're smart, you're fun, you're interesting, is that whenever I talk to a person like you, I always think, you know, I wish I were a little bit more like Pat because I think at times you might be a little bit more patient than I am or maybe a little bit more just reasonable with tone. I think sometimes if I get passionate about something, I, I may come into a tone that doesn't maybe reflect how I really feel. And I like the fact when I do podcasts, I think a lot of people who think my personality might be one way they hear my voice and they realize it's really a different way and i don't know we need more good people like you pat in our industry and I, i'm thrilled that we're friends i'm thrilled that we can have these conversations like i don't have all the answers I'm, I'm just a smart guy with a reasonable guess like anybody else and trying to put some good thoughts together and make good decisions right That's all we can do you go to play poker you're just trying to make good decisions you go on the golf course you're trying to make good decisions. Building a fantasy team is making good decisions. You're going to be wrong sometimes. You're going to have to swing for upside sometimes. You know, some things are unavoidable. Sometimes you'll just screw everything up. It's going to happen. But let's just try to make good decisions, be good to one another, you know, enjoy our friendships and uh, try to figure this out together.
0: Well, thanks for the kind words, buddy. And uh, I, I don't feel like I'm really more patient than you are. I'm probably just doing more eye rolling uh, off off stage, behind the curtain. So,
1: Oh, <laughs> well, that's that's a skill too, right? I mean, sometimes you just have to let it go. Or, you know, what I've found later in life is when something bugs me, just go to a safe harbor and talk about it with somebody privately. Not every not everything that oh my god, there's a mistake on the internet has to be battled to the death. Agreed, you know? um, agreed. Yeah. But then again, sometimes you see debates. I mean, again, I talked about that Jason Wood, JJ Zacharyson debate, and that got a little contentious at a point, uh, which you know, I think they're both really reasonable guys. I was surprised maybe it went to a level that it did. But it ended up being really good discussion and some other people joined into it. I, I think I thought about getting into it at one point. I didn't. But um, again, with Jason Wood and JJ Zachary, I have interesting things to say that conflict, that's how we learn, right? I mean, I learn the most. If somebody listens to this podcast and says, hey, you said something about Robert Woods I don't agree with, and they point something out that's interesting or intelligent, I, I'm going to look at that. you know. Or anytime we disagree, you, know, you say you're big on a player I'm not into or something, I, I'm going to look or, you know, Maybe there's something here I haven't seen. And that's how we learn. That's the fun of it. The game is, you know, I'm trying to do this better than you are or somebody else is. But, you know, we learn when we can respectfully disagree and have those discussions. So, you know, I just welcome having more of them. You know, I get respectful, of course. I, I want to always be that way. and you know, I want to try to have the conversation, have a certain respectful tone in it. But, you know, we learn when we don't agree.
0: Yeah, we get these different points of view, especially on Twitter. And, you know, whether you are willing to come over to the other person's side or, or maybe see logic in it, or maybe you just don't, but you know, as long as you stay civil and respectful for the most part, whatever, even if you don't see, uh, the same points of view, no reason you can't still be cordial to each other and still be friends. Uh, All right, Scott. Uh, Hey, before I let you run, uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you, give people your Twitter handle one more time and, uh, let them know what you're up to. Sure. Uh,
1: Yahoo Sports is where I do, you know, they're my main employer and thrilled to be doing it. I'm in my 11th year with those guys. Uh, On Twitter, Scott underscore Pianowski or the Yahoo Fantasy account on Twitter. Uh, Just all my stuff is linked there. I I try to make sure my account isn't just a link farm. I'm trying to have good discussions and it can be about anything. You want to talk about music, you want to talk about the British Open, you want to talk about the NBA draft. You know, I have opinions on just about everything and, and I welcome the discussions. I asked somebody. I think I just asked the whole crowdsource on Saturday what golf ball people played and why, and that turned into a really fun discussion. Maybe not interesting if you're not a golf fan, but um, I had a lot of good feedback and, and maybe you could tell me about your golf ball in a second. But um, yeah, but Yahoo, uh, Scott underscore Pianowski, search my name on Yahoo sports. You'll come under my, my byline and you know, all my work there. It's really easy to find my podcast. I link to it on Twitter. Check out the podcast with Mike as well. We just did a North Dallas 40 retrospective 40 years Since that movie came out, his daughter was on it. She was wonderful, a really fun discussion. So try to see that movie if you haven't, and and then check out our pod. But uh, again, I'm on Twitter, and it doesn't have to be about sports. Um, If you want to talk about something that you think is interesting, and I think it's interesting too, let's let's go back and forth a few rounds and uh, try to figure it out.
0: Yeah, Scott has a fun Twitter account. Uh, It's it's definitely not – you're hard to pin down. You're not um, on one – Particular subject, you like to uh, move around and hit a lot of different things, and, and you are a fun guy to follow. So, thanks again, buddy. Thanks, man. I want your golf ball. Even, even if it's 10 seconds, give me what golf ball you play. Titleist, and I've been playing a lot of Pro V1s because a buddy of mine who's a course superintendent gave me a gigantic box of them in February. And so, uh, I'm just an embarrassment of riches with Pro V1. So, uh, when I'm not so lucky, usually Callaway just because they're affordable and seem to feel pretty good. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of B-plus
1: balls. I feel like the A-plus balls is the Pro V1. I just don't know if I can justify the Pro V1. Um,
0: Same. My game does not justify it if I hadn't gotten this giant box for free. <laughs> there's no way I could justify losing as many of those as I do. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I bought. I recently bought four different kinds of golf balls because I'm going to have like a little Pepsi challenge
1: this year when I play golf next month. I, I don't play as much golf as I'd like to, but I, I go back East to play with my friends. And I actually had my girlfriend consider each golf ball with her eyes closed put them in her hands and tell me which ball she thought felt the nicest. And she actually preferred the pro V1. So I said, Oh, great. You have, you know, you oh, really good taste. Yeah. <laughs> and there was one ball there that was kind of a joke. I'd gotten it at a bar in Baltimore. It had the Natty Bohemian logo on it. And that was like easily the cheapest ball. And she actually identified that as well. As the rock in the group, so um, interesting. Yeah. You know you're with the right girl when you, you hear these stories of people who can like drink the Great Lakes waters and tell you, oh, that's Lake Superior. Yeah, I like the fact that my girlfriend could, who doesn't play golf at all, could identify a Pro V One. Well,
0: there might be something to the way these balls are priced, after all. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, you know, right. Yeah, a woman's touch, a woman's taste, right. So there you go, man. That's why I'll, I'll, uh, you know, my first shot in the August uh, golf trip that I take will be with the Pro V One.
0: Well, outstanding, Pianow. Good to have you again, buddy, and we'll talk soon. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, that's the show, and quite a long show it was this week. But, hey, I wanted to give you a little something extra since we did not have a show last week. Uh, Thank you once again to my guest, Scott Pianowski of Yahoo. Find him on Twitter, at Scott underscore Pianowski. Be sure to check out his work on Yahoo Fantasy Sports, and you should also give Scott's Yahoo Fantasy Baseball podcast and the Breakfast Table podcast a try if you haven't already. Let me also thank my producer, Calm Kelly, the finest producer of fantasy football podcasts in all of Ireland. Calm also hosts the RotoViz Overtime Podcast, along with Mr. Zero RB himself, Sean Siegel. I urge you to check out that pod on rotoviz.com, and also to follow Calm at Overtime Ireland. Special thanks to my colleague Melissa Jacobs of thefootballgirl.com. Find her on Twitter at thefootballgirl, and check out her podcast, simply called the Football Girl Podcast. I'll have to see how Melissa thinks I did in the female vocalist draft. Thank you to International Jetset for the music, and of course, thank you, dear listener. Glad you took the time to stop by, and I hope you'll be back here again next week when I will be joined by another great guest. Farewell, amigos. See you next week. Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. Offer subject to change,
1: terms and conditions at WinBet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700.